Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast and in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Like many other migrants from China, Hugo Wang's great-grandfathers, Wang Fung-Chuk and Leung Hing, travel across the Pacific to make a life for themselves in San Francisco. Unlike many of their peers, they don't stay instead traveling south to Mexico, in part to escape growing anti-Chinese prejudice in the United States. They thrive, at least initially, in Mexico, as Hugo explains in his book, America's Lost Chinese, The Rise and Fall of the Migrant Family Dream, published by Hearst. They assimilate and become upstanding members of the Mexican business community, only for things to fall apart during the Mexican Revolution. Hugo Wong grew up between Paris and Mexico City. From the early 1990s, he has lived almost 15 years in Greater China, including in Beijing, where he helped found various Sino-Foreign joint ventures, such as China's first investment bank. He has built his career in emerging markets, investing at major institutions in Hong Kong, London, and New York. Today, Hugo and I talk about his great-grandfathers, why they decided to make a life in Mexico, and the lost history of Chinese migration to this Latin American country. So Hugo... Maybe to kind of help our listeners, let's start by, if you could chart these two different branches of your family, you know, the one from uh, Wang Funchuk and the other from Leung Hing. Um, how do these two family branches kind of get their start? And then how do they come together uh, to, to lead to you, I guess? Well, f- uh, first, uh, Nicholas, thanks for having me today. Uh, so, yes, as you mentioned, the book tells the story of two of my ancestors, Funchuk and Hing. Uh, They both migrated to America in the 1870s when they were 12 and 14 years old, respectively, fleeing poverty in China. Uh, Both were coming from uh, Kwangtung province, uh, their ancestral village being only 40 miles apart and 100 miles from the port of Hong Kong. Hing is my mother's maternal grandfather, while Funchuk is the elder brother of her paternal one. When he landed in San Francisco, Funchuk already had a parent in the U.S. who had arrived in the 1850s, making me a fifth-generation overseas Chinese. Funchuk and Hing led parallel lives, first migrating to the U.S. and then driven out by anti-Chinese violence to Mexico, and both marrying Mexican women, with whom they each had 10 children. Unlike his Eurasian Mexican cousin, my grandfather was Chinese, growing up in China, while my grandmother was mixed-raced, growing up in Mexico, making my mother three-quarters Chinese. My grandparents met in Mexico in the 1920s 
uniting those two migrant families and later resettling in Shanghai, driven out again by exclusion in the new world. The war with Japan in 1938 forced my family to once again take the road to exile and resettle back in Mexico. And, you know, so why did both of your great-grandfathers decide to move to North America? Um, and I think, you know, maybe maybe more importantly, what was that journey like? How did they, how did they get to the U.S.? What do they have to do when they got there? Um, what was the journey of kind of migrants like your great-grandfathers? Uh, well, like, uh, like all stories of migrants, uh, there are both push and pull factors. Uh, let's start with the push factors first. Um, when my ancestors were born, uh, the Taiping Rebellion, which had made more than 20 million victims, had just ended. And Kwangtung province was nothing like today. It was rife with banditry, rebellions, and clan violence, each village being surrounded by walls and living in constant fear of attacks. Relatively, relatively more prosperous, Kwangtung province had received in past centuries immigrants from other parts of China. It was then one of the most overpopulated and overcrowded provinces in China, with land only able to feed a third of its people. Kwangtung province also suffered from droughts, tropical, uh, uh, tropical typhoons and floods due to an inexistent or badly kept infrastructure. Government works were often led to decay or used privately, a common joke at the time being that no one in China is so imposed on and cheated as the emperor. The year before Funchuk's departure in 1874, a typhoon and massive floods had killed more than 100,000 people in the province. Excess population and land scarcity meant poverty and famines. People were so destitute that they often had to sell their children into slavery or send them away as laborers, like my ancestors did. There are markets then in China dedicated for that trade. Child trafficking was banned in 1935, but the practice continued till the Communist Revolution in 1949. Poverty was exacerbated because, because more than 90% of peasants in Kwangtung province were either tenant farmers or employee laborers, very few owning their land. Land scarcity increased rents, and most people lived indebted all their lives. A common song talking about the, the two swords waiting on peasants' shoulders, high rents and high interest rates. High debt is what forced Hing's father to part from his eldest son and send him to America. There were also pool factors. The province of Kwantung had been historically the most open to the outside world. The nearby port of Hong Kong had just been ceded to the British Empire to export its products, but now, ironically, also providing ships for the migrants to go abroad. The invention of the steam engine and the increasing supply of ships had also rendered the voyage to America cheaper. Migrants' journeys were facilitated, facilitated by the fact that they could buy their boat tickets on credit, like Hing did, which many repaid over many years while working in slave-like conditions in America. The Treaty of Burlingham in 1868 between China and the United States had also established a friendly immigration framework for the Chinese. Finally, although the gold rush had ended long ago and the transcontinental railroad had just been complete, completed, California still offered many working opportunities for the Chinese, able to earn a multiple of their wages back home, which, which was the main reason Funchuk and Hing were now on their way to America. Their trip to 
to Hong. First, the way they went to America is via Hong Kong, and uh, they they took a boat uh, which took them a couple of days to go to go to uh, to go to Hong Kong, and from there their trip to America uh, took like two to three months. Uh, the the conditions of on the on on the on the trip were were very harsh. Uh, a boat, a typical boat to uh, from China to America, uh, included a few hundred people, and they all, you know, lived in in cramped conditions. Um, uh, they usually only had one bucket of water that they used for the whole day. Uh, and when 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 my ancestors lived in America, I mean, they could barely walk. Um, uh, they were obviously uh, they didn't have enough food, and uh, and so it was it was a very difficult voyage uh, to to go to uh, to go to America. So they finally they they finally get to America. What's it like? What is it like when they get there? And what do they? What kind of opportunities do they seize? I know um, I know the missionary education. Um, and I forget exactly which one of your great grandfathers um, this applies to. But the missionary education they receive in San Francisco is very important to the rest of to, to the rest of their life. Yeah, so so Funchuk and Hing had a very different start in California. Uh, Funchuk was from a less destitute family than Hing, and he already had an uncle when he arrived in San Francisco, who decided to put him in a missionary school. Uh, that missionary school was the first Chinese church in America, and also the first Protestant church outside of China. The church was run by a, a quite an incredible individual uh, called Reverend Loomis, uh, who, who could speak some Chinese as he had earlier done missionary work in China. Uh, Funchuk also stayed at Reverend Loomis's home, where he worked as a butler for a few years. Uh, some Americans believed then that the U.S. had a manifest destiny to do missionary work, not only in China, but also amongst the Chinese migrants at home. The Reverend and his family acted like a foster family to Funchuk, who was so far away from home, giving him both Christian and American values during, during his six years in San Francisco. While in San Francisco, Funchuk would also work briefly in a hotel as a bellboy, which would give him his first work experience and earning generous tips as well. This missionary experience was rare amongst Chinese. Less than 2% of Chinese migrants had converted to Christianity then, if some attended church on Sundays out of curiosity, few made the step to become church members, not sure if that would help them in a U.S. society which pre pre predominantly rejected them. Tragically, the U.S. Congress would use that lack of conversions as a further argument against the Chinese, passing anti-Chinese immigration legislations. Also, at the time, only 7% of Chinese migrants were women, many of them prostitutes, and Chinese were not allowed to marry white women, meaning there were only very few Chinese families and even fewer Chinese children. Funchuk later become, became Christian, finding that the love of Jesus and of his ancestors were not equally exclusive, mutually exclusive, a faith that would support him all his life. This missionary school experience provided a Western education to Funchuk, which, added to his Confucian education, would prove very valuable in his future business career. Funchuk, Funchuk was taught not only English, but also geography and mathematics, subjects which did not exist in Chinese schools back then, having only studied the Confucian classics in his early childhood, till he was 12 in China. By contrast, Him King came from a poorer family, 
He had bought his boat ticket on credit and had to work to repay his loan and the one of his family. Hing ends work in, in a laundry when he arrived in San Francisco under very difficult conditions as everything was done manually. California was then a land of pioneers with very few women. Less than one in six people were women. Hence, there were 2,000 laundries in San Francisco alone, while there was no, not one laundry back then in China. When Funchuk and Hing arrived, the economic crisis started to impact their lives. Unemployment had reached 30% in California, with the flow of migrants from Europe continuing unabated, while Chinese represented one in fourth of its workers. This created resentment, but also fear towards a migrant community known for its entirely distinct culture and its refusal to adopt Western ways. People worried then that California would become a huge Chinese colony. Chinese were blamed for, the la for, for lacking democratic ideals, for working for lower wages than the whites, men in quasi-slavery and women in prostitution. These would le lead to the passing by the U.S. Congress of the Chinese Exclusion Act in 1882, banning Chinese immigration to the U.S., the first legislation of its kind, turning the USA into a nation of gatekeepers and the Chinese into its first illegal immigrants. This act of legislation would hinder China-US dialogue for decades. My ancestors witnessed one of the first anti-Chinese riots in San Francisco in 1877 and suffered from physical violence. The whole Chinese community living in constant fear with killing, riots and expulsions happening all over the Pacific coast. Americans were first taking immigration matters on their, in their own hands, and this violence would continue until the end of the, 20th, of, the, of the 19th century, when the U.S. government established a well-staffed and organized immigration department. The 30,000 Chinese in San Francisco, their de facto capital in the U.S., lived very harsh lives, lacking any family and spiritual life, many living in, the, in their workplace and succumbing to the vices of opium, gambling, and prostitution. Saddened by the conditions of his compatriots in San Francisco, Funchuk decided to try his luck in business in the south, across the Mexico-U.S. border, rapidly crossing the border when his U.S. residence permit application was rejected. Hing was hired at the same time through the six Chinese companies of San Francisco to work for a Mexican company. Both would start their career in Mexico by building the new railroad. Funchuk, Funchuk as a labor organizer, and Hing as a worker. Funchuk was finally able to use his language skills and Christian education to help his compatriots in their negotiations with their American employers. Mexico was then starting to grow its rail network to improve its trade with the United States. Quite a contrast with the Qing court in China, which opposed the railroad then, seeing it as a way for foreigners to invade their country. And I want to ask, I mean, was it how unique or maybe strange is the wrong word but but how you how unique was their journey to mexico did many other chinese migrants make the same choice to to go south to avoid us prejudice uh, in total more than 60,000 uh Chinese entered Mexico at the time, and, and many of them actually crossed the border, uh, uh, crossed the U.S.-Mexico border. Uh, so no, they're, they're not, they're not um, uh, uh, the only people to do that. Um, 
I think because of their 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 background and, and especially Fun Chu because of his education, his his path would be completely different to most other migrants. But but the the path to uh, uh, enter Mexico was not was not uh, 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 uncommon at the time. Um, um, so then they get to Mexico and um, not to not to jump ahead, I guess to to um, to later on in their lives, but they but they both become uh, quite successful business people. Um, I mean, I think Fuchuk becomes quite a bit more successful. Um, but they become pretty, you know, well-established members of the Mexican business community. You know, what were the sorts of things, like what were the sorts of networks, be they trade networks or existing communities in Mexico or like help from, from overseas? How were they able to become such such established members of the Mexican business community? Yeah, so, so Funchuk and Hing exemplify two different types of migrants. Uh, uh, one of them, uh, Hing, becoming a merchant, and 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 Funchuk, the other one, uh, becoming a business magnate, an investor. Um, however, both succeeded in their businesses by leveraging the strong connections uh, within the Chinese international diaspora. Uh, it is essential to note that the migrants then retained strong links with their Chinese communities back home. Every migrant back then was a member of a native home organization, or Huiguan, many believing that they would go back home one day. China was, and remained today, a society where filial piety and ancestor worship are paramount. Becoming a migrant did not mean that one had lost its place in the family tree. On the contrary, by con- continuing to contribute financially to the home community from abroad, the migrant remained sure that he would inherit when his father died. For that reason, all migrants made sure that upon their death, even if they had not themselves made it back home alive, that their dead corpses would. The native soil with all their ancestors was the only way for the dead migrants to be fed in the afterlife and not becoming a hungry ghost in America. For that reason, the migrants made sure that they kept a pristine reputation within their clan abroad, as if they had never left their native village. Those native, those native organizations helped the migrants find work, borrow money, send money back home, and repatriate their, corps, their corpses. Hing was able to establish his business thanks to his native organization, which gave him a loan and arranged for his store merchandise of high-end Chinese handicrafts to be shipped from China to Mexico via San Francisco. By tapping into those transnational organizations, the Chinese were able to gain a price advantage that the Western competitors could not achieve. Chinese grocers introduced unknown sales techniques in Mexico, like itinerant trade, providing credit to customers, carrying large inventories, and incentivizing customers with free products. The experience of Funchuk is even more spectacular, as he was able to tap into the capital of his clan to buy a chain of hotels and extensive farms across the north of Mexico. Later, Funchuk partnered with Kong Youwei, a famous Chinese philosopher and politician in exile to establish the Chinese colony of Torreon with an international bank, a tramway company, a school for Chinese, and a shipping venture. The Chinese also brought large parcels of land throughout that northern Mexican boomtown. In in addition to the restaurants, laundries, and hotels, the Chinese controlled the food distribution of the entire city. Never in history had a group of Chinese reached such level of economic influence over a Western population and territory. 
unless, unlike most American Chinese settlements at the time, with its employees' barracks or typical Chinese restaurants, laundries, and stores, this was a unique project, funded by large pools of international Chinese capital and aimed at building a large business to serve both local and Chinese customers. This was probably one of the first examples of such a Chinese colony in the global south, outside of Asia. And, you know, I think it's it's important to know kind of how important Kaliohe is to the history of China at, at this at this point in time. Um, maybe you can share a little bit about, about who he was and, and why he's so, like, 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 he's not nobody. He's a pretty important person in this period of time. Yes. Yeah, so Kong Youwei was uh, was quite a remarkable individual, and sadly, his uh, his his life and and his um, his um, and what he's done is actually very poorly known in in the West. Uh, so he he um, he was from a from a from a gentry family, uh, and and um, he's also from uh, Guangdong province, from Guangdong province, uh, having grown not far from where. Uh, Hing and uh, and Funchuk uh, grew up, uh, and very early he was put to study uh, the Confucian classics. Uh, his parents wanted him to pass the imperial examination so that he became, uh, you know, uh, uh, a Mandarin. Uh, and 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 uh, Kong Youwei was a, a brilliant uh, uh, individual, and and obviously he passed uh, the uh, in his in his late thirties he passed uh, the examination with success, and he became a and became a, a, a civil servant in Beijing. Uh, but uh, he was not really interested uh, uh, in becoming a civil servant. Uh, he wanted to reform uh, the you know the the, the late Qing Empire, and uh, when when China lost. Um, its uh, its war with Japan in 1895. He wrote uh, a long letter to the Qing Emperor, uh, uh, proposing him to reform uh, the Chinese Empire, and and uh, those letters were so powerful that uh, um, the emperor decided to uh, to make him his advisor. Um, but but sadly, uh, uh, the like he. Those those reforms were 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 not were, he was not able to implement those reforms, because the empress um, Tse Xi um, actually decided to 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 uh, stop those reforms and and uh, 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 try to uh, send all those reformers to prison, and so uh, Kong Youwei was forced to um, to go into exile, and he spent uh, almost uh, 15 years abroad, many of those years in America. Um, and and he was he was very interested actually to learn about 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 the West. Uh, at the time, very few uh, high-end civil servants uh, traveled to America, and so he spent a lot of time uh, studying and, and, and analyzing uh, U.S. society. Um, and during those years, he traveled to Mexico, and that's when he befriend, befriended uh, my ancestor, uh, and together with him uh, uh, established this uh, this uh, Mexican colony, this Chinese Mexican colony. Uh, but in addition to being a politician, he was also a philosopher, and and later in his life, he he wrote a book called uh, the Great uh, the Great Unity, um, uh, which. Uh, you know, which called for a new world order where there were, would not be any any uh, uh, borders, uh, and and where where all all the world all the countries in the world would be united uh, in a in a in a new world order. Um, mm-hmm. 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off so you mentioned um this this town of torreon um which uh you know there's this there's this really bloody massacre of the asian mexican community um in that town as part of the mexican revolution um which of course as you know at least to some a victim of of um, and I want to kind of go from there to talk about, you know, the the Mexican Revolution and how that affected um, affected your family and affected their business. Um, ultimately, it, it, it makes their lives significantly more difficult. Um, but I wonder if I talk about how the revolution um, affected affected your great grandfathers. And, and maybe before that, if, if you don't mind, actually, mm, yeah. I, I would like to give an introduction to actually how how was Mexican society before the revolution and maybe what actually led to the Mexican revolution. Please, um, please go ahead. Yeah. So although although Mexico uh, was more welcoming than the U.S. then, um, as the Chinese were needed for Mexican agriculture and well construction, uh, Mexican society and government remained racist towards towards the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese in Mexico then were called motores de sangre, meaning blood engines, uh, showing their low status in Mexican society. Uh, only a small minority of Chinese became nationalized Mexicans, like Funchuk and Hing did, while that was while, while that option was not even available to them in the U.S. Yet they are also considered better workers than the local Indians or mestizos, I mean the people, meaning people of, of mixed race. Although not as, ideal, not as ideal as Europeans, the Mexican government wanted, wanted a whiter workforce. This was a typical case of state racism. Uh, this created a lot of resentment from the Mexican lower classes, similar to what had happened to the Chinese in the US three decades earlier. A common complaint and criticism of the Mexicans at the time was against the widespread belief that Mexicans were people who knew less and were less able were, and were less able than other nations of Earth. Another difference with the U.S. is that the Chinese were allowed to buy land and to enjoy the protection of the law, meaning that a lot of them abandoned their manual jobs and opened their own businesses, many becoming merchants, not only, not only restaurant and laundry owners like in the U.S., in the north of Mexico, by 1930, the Chinese had monopolized the small grocery trade, something unimaginable then in any other Western country. The racism, the racism in Mexico took then an additional form than in the U.S., where Chinese workers had only been vilified for stealing the employment of Americans. In Mexico, by contrast, the Chinese and other foreigners were also criticized for becoming successful and stealing 
business opportunities from the Mexicans. A Mexican industrialist wrote that foreign companies were behaving like the conquerors of a defeated country. As they grew richer, many Chinese, like Funchug and Hing, also married Mexican wives, something that was not allowed to them in the U.S. either. But those marriages were shunned by Mexican society. It is estimated that a tenth to a fifth of the Chinese ended up marrying Mexican wives. Funchug and Hing would each have ten mixed children in Mexico, which, without doubt, facilitated their integration into Mexican society. The experience of my ancestors in Mexico was hence marked by greater acculturation into Mexican society, but because of their successes, by a strong resentment against what they had achieved as foreigners. So then how does how does the Mexican Revolution then affect your family? I mean, because it leads to a lot of upheaval, it, it leads to lots of business opportunities. What what happens to to your family kind of during the revolution and afterwards? Yes. So the Mexican Revolution was a popular and very violent uprising, which lasted 10 long years, killing more than one and a half million people, or one out of 10 Mexicans. The revolution was mainly driven by nationalism and socialism, but also anti-intellectualism, rejecting the technocrats of the previous regime. Each of those three principles put the Chinese migrants on the wrong side of history, as many had prospered in Mexico. The previous regime had been marked by extreme inequalities, all Mexican land being owned by less than 2% of the population, and wages being one-fifteenth of U.S. ones, with 90% of Mexicans being considered poor and working in quasi-slavery. Many properties and infrastructure were owned by foreigners who discriminated against local workers, the U.S. controlling a quarter of Mexican territory. Mexico accounted then for 50% of the total U.S. foreign investments abroad, and many Chinese worked for American companies. Funchuk was a good example, having worked or partnered with American on railroads, mining, hotels, and farming projects. Although rejected from the U.S. immigration, thanks to his education and American friends, he would remain very close to the U.S. all his life. The revolutionary motto became for the motherland and for the race, rejecting all foreigners, but especially the Chinese, who were so conspicuous. There were only 120,000 foreigners in Mexico before the revolution, compared to the more than 30 million Europeans having migrated to the U.S. in the previous century, making their success more obvious. Welcome turned suddenly into rejection and hatred against the Chinese community, who, because of their successes, became the scapegoats of the revolution. The revolution hit Funchuk and Hing differently, as Hing was a seller of high-end Chinese art, hence not being in competition with the Mexicans, he was not directly targeted. But, as all rich Mexicans had fled the country during the revolution, Hing lost all his customers. By seeking refuge in Mexican big cities, Hing's family was relatively spared, but they too suffered from daily acts of violence. A touching family photograph at the time shows all the Hing's children with sad and angry expressions, not understanding what is happening to them. Funchuk, because he was living in the countryside and competed, and competed directly against the Mexicans in his various businesses, suffered the most from the revolution, seeing many of his relatives die in the Torreon massacre. In two days, 303 Chinese, or half of the Chinese population of Torreon, including women and children, were massacred savagely by a mob of 4,000 people 
made of released prisoners, soldiers, and common folks. Torreon was characterized by corporations owned by absentee Chinese capitalists and employing Chinese people exclusively. Those owners did not have their families, their mixed families living in Torreon, and were blamed for the rampant land speculation and for hoarding merchandises in times of crisis. All this had created resentment from the local populace. During the looting of Torreon, other foreign communities did not suffer the same way as the Chinese. And the Chinese did not offer any resistance either, showing that the massacre had simply been an act of racist mass murder, as explained in independent investigation reports later. This would be the largest massacre of Chinese in American history, destroying their colony of Torreon. More massacres followed in the following decades, totaling more than 1,000 victims, creating a reign of terror for the Chinese diaspora. After the revolution, those massacres were followed by the implementation of harsh racial laws, even worse than in the U.S., and a mass expulsion of the Chinese from three northern provinces. Those laws prevented mixed marriages, segregated the Chinese in certain neighborhoods, and preventing them from carrying their businesses any longer, being a way for Mexicans to steal their possessions. After the revolution, Hing's business recovered as his rich customers returned. But that would not be the case for Funchuk, whose fortune was stolen by dishonest politicians. Of the 60,000 Chinese who had entered Mexico at the start of the century, less than 5,000 were left by 1940. It is, re- it, is re- it is interesting to point out that in many countries where mass migration of Chinese happened, they're often followed by mass killings, often motivated by economic resentment, like in the Philippines in the 18th century, Peru and the U.S. in the 19th, and Mexico and Southeast Asia in the 20th. So you know, in in kind of telling the story of of your great grandfathers, that they that they. Um, had different feelings about um, about about keeping their descendants connected to their Chinese heritage, um, and so how did future generations, the ones that were you know were born in Mexico, um, how did they how did they understand how did they you know grapple with with their Chinese well with their Chinese heritage and with China? I know some, I think one member. One descendant went to Shanghai, was based in Shanghai, and then and then got out during the war. Um, but how did they kind of grapple with, with their Chinese legacy? Uh, well, the, the, the question to that actually has to do with how Hing and Chuk, uh, uh, you know, reacted to, to, to those events in Mexico. Um, facing this exclusion, the few remaining Chinese, many of the few remaining Chinese decided to hide their origins and blend in. Hing, for example, forbid his younger children to learn Chinese as China was undergoing its own revolution and was affected by political upheavals. Uh, Hing believed that Mexico was their only future. Uh, Hing had Mexicanized his, earlier his name from Leong Hing to Jorge Leon. Uh, and various members of my family had also fake birth certificates showing they were born in Mexico instead of China. Uh, there is an amnesia from the whole Mexican Chinese community, people preferring to forget those years of exclusion and racism. Besides, Chinese migrants remain optimists. That was the only way to survive, thinking that those massacres would not happen again, and hence making their memory superfluous. Also, unlike in the US, the remaining Chinese community lacked the critical mass to allow for it to reproduce itself, 
instead being condemned to complete assimilation. Beside violence and racism, there are other reasons behind the Chinese community almost complete extinction, including the harsh economic crisis in America and the relatively better living conditions in China than in the previous century. An important point to make is that the remaining Chinese who stayed did everything they could to become Mexicans by their mixed marriages, for example, or by a complete acculturation. By contrast, in the U.S., until the Second World War, many Chinese continued to live amongst themselves in their Chinatowns, teaching, teaching, their, Chinese, uh, teaching their children Chinese language, uh, knowing that they would later be forced to work in Chinatown or have better opportunities going back to China. Today, the descendants of those early migrants are only half a quarter or an eighth Chinese by blood, having lost much links to China, but yet remaining proud of their heritage. The closing of China for almost four decade, decades after World War II did not help either the Chinese uh, in keeping a link with their country of origin. I want to turn now to to you um, and your experience in, in trying to write this book. Um, you know, you're, you're you're delving back four generations. Um, I expect the documentation was not amazing. <laughs> um, but, but how did you, how were you able to research um, both, like the history of both of these branches of your family, um, including kind of, I mean, you, you really do look at like, like a lot of historical documentation to figure out, um, to say, you know, oh, this name pops up here. It's not clear that it's my great grandfather, but you know, but like, so, but how did you actually do the research for this book? Well, I have to be honest, it wasn't, it wasn't easy and, and I struggled quite a bit. Um, the, the research was difficult for various reasons. Uh, first, the two main protagonists of the book uh, each had died 70 years earlier and none of their children actually were alive at the time of writing. Uh, I, my, my, I, had, I had to actually understand their personalities uh, through the scattered documents and memories that, that they had in front of me. Uh, another challenge I faced, as I mentioned earlier, was the global amnesia uh, uh, which the Chinese community suffers from, uh, no one being keen to remember any of, of those years of exclusion. Uh, the third dif difficulty was the lack of critical historical narratives in Mexico itself. Uh, in official texts, most politicians at the time are described as nation founders and heroes, purposely hiding the political violence and corruptions of those days. I had to dig into out-of-print books, academic theses, and old newspapers to find references to some of the events that had happened at the start of the century. Actually, some of that political violence continues in Mexico today, and one wonders if a better understanding and teaching of its history might help the country better deal with that violence. Uh, on the other hand, I was also helped, uh, in my case, uh, uh, by the fact that my ancestors had been quite prominent Chinese. And because of that, they had uh, been quite successful and had left traces of their passage behind, like letters, articles, and photographs, which were critical in actually doing research about them. Uh, over the last two decades, also historians started investigating the history of the Chinese in Mexico, uh, and their academic work allowed me to glue together my scattered family memories. I want to end maybe by, 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 by talking about, you can say the present, you can say the future. Um, I know there's been some effort to, to grapple with the mistreatment of Asian Mexicans and Chinese Mexicans, um, oftentimes to be 
to be, I guess, with, with the response of being, oh, well, in the past, let's just move on. Um, obviously, China is uh, a much bigger economic player now. Um, it's investing a lot more in Mexico, in part, I think, due to trade war <laughs> concerns. Um, but, but, but I guess, I mean, given now that you've kind of you've 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 done the research for this book, you you've written this book. Um, and now looking today at the relationship between China and Mexico, I mean, what, what, what lessons have you learned, um, through this whole process or what kind of analysis do you have of, of China and Mexico today? Uh, well, I've, I've, through my research, actually, I've spoken with quite a few, uh, Mexican Chinese activists and they are the ones who highlighted to me that, that, um, voluntary amnesia was still a feature of many Polit- po- uh, leaders in, in Mexico. Uh, in recent history, civil servants have tried to erase some facts about Torreón in history books, and attempts to memorialize Chinese history uh, were vandalized in Torreón. Uh, for example, they tried to name uh, one street uh, Wong Funchuk in Torreón, and, and that name had to be changed because the, the local uh, uh, um, People didn't want didn't want their name to be named after a Chinese, uh, or there was a statue that was put together in a park uh, in Torreon, and, and that that statue had to be removed because it was vandalized. Um, in in the Mexican census today, um, Mexico still does does not recognize or tracks the many different minorities in in the country, uh, meaning that there's no way to track uh, you know who comes from which minority in Mexico. I think this may be due to the fact that Mexico sees itself today as a mixed-race and tolerant country, making those distinctions unnecessary, which in many ways is true. Uh, the country believes, hopefully rightly, that it has put this problem of racism behind, as more than 70% of its population are now a mix of Indian and, and, and Spanish descent. Uh, Mexico may have a problem also of conceptualizing that victims of racism can themselves be per- perpetrators of racism, like like they like they were against the Chinese, for example. Uh, this is actually exemplified in uh, in one of Mexico's most I- iconic painting uh, or mural by Diego Rivera, called "Dream of a Sunday Afternoon in Alameda Central," which was painted in the 1950s. And the the, the picture depicts a Chinese policeman with evil traits trying to expel a Mexican Indian from a park. Like in the US, 50 years earlier, the Chinese were again depicted as being on the side of the explo- exploiters and against the, you know, the common people. Uh, nonetheless, it is also remarkable that in 2021, 100 year, 110 years after the Torreon massacre, the Mexican president asked for forgiveness in an official, in an official ceremony which was attended by the, um, by the Chinese ambassador. And, and I think that shows that, that um, uh, you know, the, the Mexicans are actually willing to recognize that, that, that uh, violent history. Uh, and indeed, as you mentioned, that might open the door to uh, new exchanges between, uh, between, uh, between Mexico and the United States, uh, especially, uh, no, actually between Mexico and China, uh, especially given the trade wars, you know, with, uh, between, uh, between China and the United States uh, at the moment. Uh, and, and I think, as I mentioned earlier, I think this, this, this experience of Torreon uh, may be one of the early examples of uh, Chinese foray into the global south. Um, uh, you know, that, 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 that those, um, those discussions about what role China 
uh, has in the global south uh, uh, is becoming very very topical at the moment. Um, and, and indeed, looking at this history of Mexico, uh, you know, one can uh, maybe find lessons for, you know, what Chinese did well or, or could do better, you know, in dealing with, uh, you know, with their, with their involvement in, in the global south. Well, I think with that, um, with that potential or possible lesson, uh, I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Hugo Wong author of America's Lost Chinese, The Rise and Fall of a Migrant Family Dream. Hugo, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work? Not just this book, but all of your work. And um, what's next for you after you've written this this very um, intense project? What do you think the next project might be? Uh, well, the, the book can be found... Um... The, the book was has been released in uh, in uh, in in London uh, uh, in um, in August and has just been released in the U.S. Uh, in uh, in October and is being distributed in the U.S. by uh, Oxford University Press and I think it's available in in most uh, bookstores uh, in the U.S. in both the U.S. and and England and I'm uh, working on on um, uh, a translation of the book. In uh, in French, in uh, uh, Chinese, and 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 also in Spanish, and I'm hoping that uh, that the book will uh, will soon be uh, also uh, published in uh, in all those countries, uh, and um, and maybe one day also uh, uh, hopefully uh, be made into a into a documentary. Uh, that's also something that I would like uh, I would like to happen. Um, and my next project uh, at the moment I. I am working on uh, possible other books uh, about uh, about China, uh, maybe more uh, you know personal book about my personal experience in China, and one of my family. Uh, but it's still you know at the uh, you know uh, at, it's still a project at the moment. Uh, nothing, nothing, nothing very progressed. Well, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those running in, around, and about Asia. Next week... Join us for an interview with Elise Hu, author of Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. But before then, Hugo, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Nicholas. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.